gentle listener, and welcome to, thank you, an extra spooky Michael and Ethan in a room with scotch. I'm (laughs) Ethan, and this is Igor. What's your name, Igor? Igor, I am also known as Michael. But yeah, not do that voice. we're sort of out of period and uh, genre here, or at least subgenre. But uh, this was the spookiest intro I could think of in the five seconds I took to consider it. Um, hey, but that's about how much preparation we do on this podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're we're here. We're uh, we're gonna talk ultimately about books and not very much about scotch but here mm-hmm, right at the mm-hmm. beginning a very good place to start we are going to talk briefly about the scotch that we will be drinking tonight uh which is the glen Morangie, uh the original highland single malt scotch whiskey aged 10 years mm-hmm. uh i had an urge to say 10 10 years because my bottle says it twice um uh-huh. yeah uh it's it's a scotch we've been drinking it we've been drinking it these this will be our third episode and second month in a row uh drinking the scotch so it's surprising we're as coherent as we are and just remember that for fill in the blank here later when i say something stupid or wrong um it's it's never ethan's fault it's the fault it's it's glenn morangie's fault it's glenn morangie's fault and that will become the motto of this entire podcast if and when Glenn Morangy <laughs> sponsors us. Hey. Ah. <laughs> uh, a lot of cues for like stuff to fill in later on this intro, I guess. Um, yeah. That said. The editor has a lot of work, I guess. Yeah. Um, now that said, it's a very strict podcast. And like any very strict podcast, we need some rules. Hey, Karen. Mm-hmm. Some Some rules, please. Rule one, once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two, no one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three, Ethan must never say the phrase first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four, Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five, if anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six, The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, Gentle listener. Thanks, Karen. It's pretty weird that Michael uh, uncorked his bottle uh, like seven minutes ago and has been just holding it open this whole time, looking at you eagerly while you read the rules. But 
Letting it breathe. Letting oh, it yeah, breathe. that's the thing you do with scotch. Yep. All right, Michael, it looks like you have poured out a dram for your wife. I have. I have. She will be receiving this. I will be explicitly handing it to her. Yes. So there's no question. <laughs> um, as well you should, <laughs> and as well she will uh, apparently call you out on if you don't. Exactly. Very good. She takes no quarter. <laughs> no, full half ounce for her. Um, <laughs> with that, Slancha. L'chaim. I have something for you. I love you. Gross. Well, then one day you will experience true love. Uh, I did. And then I've been married for like <laughs> eight years at this point. So uh, it's kind of. Oh, yeah, that's about when the romance yeah, dies. Yeah, that's been my experience. <laughs> I mean, my experience was it died about five years ago. Um, oh, head of the curve. Yeah. You always were an overachiever. <laughs> Darn right. Uh, <laughs> and listen, no one tell Karen that I said that. Um, I will be in trouble. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, we are reading tonight a new book. Um I think it's technically in the Midnight Library universe in the sense that all stories and all possibilities are in that universe, but um, that's the last mm -hmm. yep. Midnight Library multiverse joke I can make. Uh, we are reading tonight. I just had to shoehorn it in. I mean, would you expect any less or indeed any more? Um, tonight we are reading The Haunting of Hill House by... Shirley Jackson, uh, sort of a classic of the horror genre, which is why our intro was so spooky. Um, but uh, mm -hmm. those of you who, you know, stuck around through the, the spookiness and the creepiness of that intro, I think probably have sort of the, the capacity and the, the uh, bravery to... Constitution. Yeah, the Constitution, thank you, to... Uh, uh, now was that now was that a haunting of Hill House joke or was that a D and D joke, Michael? I will let the listener decide. Um, Besides, you'd need a wisdom saving throw for ghosts. D and D. That's true. That is true. Uh, I was trying to think of what you'd need in Call of Cthulhu. It's probably sanity because it's always sanity, <laughs> and you'd probably it's always sanity. you'd probably fail. Um, at least at, mm -hmm. at your at level one here, where all of us are. Uh, anyway, oh, yes. um, this is not a nerdy podcast. This is one where we talk about books for two hours at a time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, you know what? It occurs to me. Speaking of Midnight Library, uh, and that especially our first hey, episode. You said that was your last. I reference. said that was my last joke. This is not a joke. I was no. going to say especially the first episode of our discussion may come up several times tonight just because I did edit that episode today. Um, and one of the things oh, that okay. we failed to do in that episode is to give the listener a chance to read the book. Oh, uh, hey, yeah. Uh, so that said, gentle listener, we're going to give you 
double the amount of time this episode to to uh, go ahead and read both books. Now, again, our usual disclaimer when we do remember to do this is that you don't have to read the book to keep listening. Um, but from this point on, we are going to spoil the book. So, you know, if you don't, uh, if you choose not to read it and to continue listening, um, you know, the, the warning is sort of right up front on the, on the outside of the tin. So, go ahead, read the book. And you're back. Uh, how was it reading both Midnight Library and The Haunting of Hill House at the same time? It's probably pretty weird. It's pretty weird for me. Uh... Mm-hmm. I was I had one in each hand and I was like you know doing like a page at a time on either one pretty I thought it would be a more efficient way to anyway um that's neither here nor there uh we're talking about the haunting of hill house Michael how do you feel about yeah. horror as a genre just to kind of establish a baseline here, um like they do with a polygraph test Oh, okay. Establish that baseline. Uh, it's not my lies, go-to. Lies, lies, lies. When it's a good, does when you lie. Sorry, go on. Oh, got it. All right. Well, um, when it's good, I like it, and it's good. When it's not good, well, no, that's not even the bit. Let me let me backpedal on that because it, I have to be in the sure. right mood, and it has to be the right shade. No pun intended. <laughs> Um, and that's when I enjoy horror. I'll say this: I enjoy reading horror far better than I enjoy watching horror. Sure. Um, I think I feel, if not in input, at least in effect, I feel probably similarly to you. Um, I just like last year in twenty twenty two, um. I think I watched the first horror movie, specifically the first slasher movie. As far as I, you know, there have been horror movies that I enjoyed before, but as far as slasher movies mm. go, this I think is maybe the first one that I enjoyed so much that I genuinely would like to go back and rewatch it. Like I've I've genuinely considered mm. that. What I, what happens for me specifically with horror movies is every October I get in the mood to watch like one to two horror movies and it's like, that's it. That's my fix for the year. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, the movie that I watched in 2022 was called Pearl and it drew me in because besides being a slasher movie, it was like a period piece and it had to do kind of with like Hollywood mm. and, or not directly with Hollywood. It's complicated, uh too complicated to explain without giving away some spoilers but um it was it was kind of about a lot of things that i liked other than sort of slashing as it were um and that's my thing about horror in general whether and to me it's whether it's in fiction or in um film is like a lot of horror is sort of about the the gratuitousness of horror, whether it's violence or scares yeah. or, or chills or whatever. And my thing is, like, mm-hmm. a good book can do those things to me, like, can move me in those ways, and I appreciate that. But I need it to be more than that. Like, that's that's why I've always resisted slashers in the past, is, like, 
a lot of the ones that I've mm-hmm. seen and, you know, tend to just, like, the whole point of it is, like, the violence. And to me, right. regardless of, like, sort of leaving aside whatever moral judgments I might bring to the table, like, that's just boring. Like, for a film to just kind of be about yeah. the, like, bloody death of people is, like, usually boring if there's nothing else going on. Um... So horror for me is a weird genre in that, like, I can appreciate it, but, like, I... So I'm not, like, one of these people who's like, oh, I hate horror, I can't do horror, whatever. But I'm also not one of these people who, like, seeks it out for, like, the main things that are sort of on the on the tin, as the, as the kids say. Um, so... Right. That's, that's kind of how I, uh, how I came to The Haunting of Hill House... Um, as someone who really was in it much more for the fact that I really like what little of Shirley, or liked what little of Shirley Jackson I had read up to this point, much more so than I cared about, like, this book being sort of a classic of horror specifically. Um. Sure. Yeah. Uh, now that said, uh, Michael... I want. I have two questions. Um, okay. And excuse me. I'm trying to figure out which one to ask first because they both kind of could lead into the other one, but the order in which I ask them might. I'm afraid it might prejudice the witness. Um, okay. So I guess I'm going. So I'm going to ask this first. And this is something I both, it's a question that implies one answer. I have two answers to it. And I don't even think that there are only two answers necessarily. Um, And then I will have a follow-up question either, you know, after that or in the next episode. I'm not sure how long this first question is even going to take us. Um, But Michael, my first question for you is... Who is the main character of this book? Dude. Yeah, that's a... I, I think it's... That's one of the questions that, um, as a reader, you're trying to figure out early on. Um, and... You're you're left to float around a little bit, especially early on. But right? I, th- especially early on, I think ultimately. This isn't the end of my answer, but I think ultimately, you're left to settle on Eleanor as the main character. I don't think that's the final answer of who the main character is. But I also think that that's a very valid question just to ponder, and here's why. Because the 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 question of who the main character is is just another element in the horror aspect of the book. It leaves the reader waiting, leaves the reader in suspense for it and that's ultimately where the majority of the horror i would say comes in is in the waiting and that's something that's even highlighted explicitly uh 
in the text. Um, there at page 112, um, it's uh, Theodora talking to Eleanor, but right up at the top, uh, Theodora says, I think this waiting is nerve-wracking, almost worse than having something happen. Uh, um, do you have like a chapter or sub-chapter reference? I think oh, our page numbers sure. might be different. Yeah, I guess we've got different different page numbers. Um, it is in chapter 5, part 2, and it's maybe about a quarter or a third of the way through in chapter okay. 2. Um, it's not the beginning of a paragraph. Um, the paragraph starts with Theodore saying, I wonder... Gotcha. Why? And then she goes, why everything has been so quiet. I think this waiting is nerve-wracking, almost worse than having something happen. And then Eleanor says this, and so this is where it also ties into your question about who the main character is. Uh, Eleanor says, it's not us doing the waiting. It's the house. I think it's biding its time. And so there, and like even throughout the book, you could make the case that the house is the main character. Sure. Um, itself. Which is a cheeky sort of answer. Um, um, but. Uh, go ahead if you have. It. I, I don't know. It, well, it depends on what you mean by main character. You know, who goes through the main character arc that parallels the plot. Um, can be a, a contestant for main character. Um, in which case, you might settle down on to. Eleanor, um, who gets most screen time? Yeah, uh, is Eleanor. I think that, um, um, and I sort of have several responses to your several answers. Um, yeah, and again, yeah, I don't. Uh, I I agree with you that like, depending on your definition of main character, I think you can argue mm -hmm. for different main characters, and I do think that's like probably quite intentionally part of the unsettling nature um yeah of this book i'm trying to remember what we read recently oh it was um uh oh uh, man the one that you the house on vesper sands um i went uh, yeah. through sort of a whole uh uh rant discussion um whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. on the idea of the uncanny and the way that it yes. shows up originally in gothic fiction and then kind of that there's this whole heritage and you know as as these things do over the course of multiple hundred years it gets revised and revised and reused and so forth but um i think that there's some intentional uncanniness even just in the structure of this book um i again referencing the first uh the first part of our discussion of midnight library i use i use sort of a an extended metaphor about the smoothness of midnight library that it was an in intentionally a book that kind of mm -hmm. flowed together as like a single single piece like there is there is a structure to it and there's like a you know um you can identify like different plot points and so forth but it's it's design it's almost it's almost designed to uh take you through um from start to finish almost seamlessly without like interrupting your flow i feel like this book is designed right. 
to intentionally disrupt uh, that idea. It's designed mm-hmm. to in in this in this metaphor, it's designed to not be smooth at all, structurally speaking. Um, and I, you know, I yeah. think we can partly get that even just from the um, from the very beginning. the The opening the opening lines of this book are quite famous and justly so. Uh, no live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Um, and so, you know, that's that's not only like an unsettling like horror novel, like classic line it also establishes a narration that's like it's very it's third person and it's very authoritative it feels more like mm-hmm. it, it feels more like first person but intentionally detached from the idea of first person um uh yeah it also like and and this obtains throughout at least the first chapter i would say feels much more like victorian almost dickensian um in a way i wasn't Mm. expecting from you know any book that was released i want to say in the 1950s um uh yeah 1959 you know um uh you know this is this is well post fitzgerald post hemingway once narration becomes much more sort of coy and and uh detached almost Mm -hmm. uh that idea of a, a third-person narrator intervening to say something like, you know, Dickens' narrator in The Christmas Carol, you know, says throughout where he's like, oh, and I doubt very much that Scrooge dabbled in spirits anymore after that, you know, stuff like that. Like, feels dated. Right. Um, and even on... It does. Well, what it, it strikes me, you know, akin to it is a truth Yeah, exactly. Again, a, a, right? a line from a novel that... almost 150 years mm-hmm older than this right yep um right and i I just happened as i was glancing through just happened to look at chapter two uh which begins no human eye can isolate the unhappy coincidence of line and place which suggests evil in the face of a house um and goes on kind of following that (laughs) that uh uh idea but again it's a very it's a very authoritative third person narrator um but also structurally, like, you know, we spend the first chapter kind of bouncing around, um, getting introduced to all these yeah. different characters. Like, it's we're intentionally disruptive of the idea that, like, we get introduced to, like, Star Wars style to one character who leads us to another, who leads us to another, who eventually leads us to the main character. Like, there are breaks and there are separations. Yeah. Um, and then as as well as that once we finally at a certain point and i almost feel like i only noticed it very belatedly when i read this book um at a certain point we Mm. settle into a much more typical description of eleanor or typical like like characterization of eleanor as a main character so you could almost think of that initial section as Mm. like prologue and then we're settling into her and we almost get reintroduced to these main characters through her eyes um a little bit later but then we have that extended section where eleanor chooses to sort of go against her um is it her mother who doesn't want her to leave or her sister who doesn't want her to take the car yeah because her Her mother yeah her mother has died recently 
yeah, and the sister and the husband right. don't want to take the car, and then like this whole extended, almost meandering, almost again like a like an eighteenth century like road novel like something henry fielding might write um yeah this almost meandering journey out to out to hill house before we get to hill house itself like for a for a book that's called the haunting of hill house it sure takes us i want to say maybe 75 pages or so before we get the person that seems like our main character to uh to hill house itself um maybe it's maybe it's less maybe it's like 50 pages but Mm. um you know, for a 200-page book, that's not an insignificant chunk of the the text. Um, so even that is somewhat disruptive of our expectations. Um, now, ultimately, Michael, I would agree with the assessment that, like, if this were, if you're judging sort of by the standards of, like, 10th grade literature class, right? Like, you're, you're sort of, you're sort of basic right. uh, how to read a novel, high school level uh, stuff um eleanor is absolutely the main character she has uh as you said the internal arc um she has she literally goes on the the journey that we certainly see most of um she has the largest amount of screen time as it were stage time whatever whichever metaphor you Mm want to use there um so in a lot of ways she comes off as the main character uh so that's the first way i agree with you the second way i agree with you is when i initially like the instant i closed the book on my first read through and spoiler alert i've like dipped back into it and skimmed and read some stuff about this book but i have only done one complete read through of this book but the 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 first instant i closed the book what i said to myself was oh the house is the main character like I felt like Eleanor was a red herring um, and or that like the the character and even the arc was not Eleanor herself, but it was what the house did to Eleanor um, or sure. even the idea of like the stuff that Eleanor brought to the house like was yeah, that was the um you know that was that was where the main character interaction goes but like the house is essentially a uh uh i mean it is a character certainly i think if you if i were writing a list like you know yes. the, the cliff note style or whatever list of characters in this book i think in in this book in a way that is not true about a lot of books including other like haunted house books specifically um i think i would include the house as a character without mm-hmm. any kind of second thought or apology um what do you think about that take yeah michael is the house the main character well that's you know that's a fair fair question and i would certainly accept that thesis in uh um an analysis of of this book and it's it's something that connects with something that um I was thinking of while I was reading it, especially maybe about halfway through or even farther, um, that the title of this book can have a dual meaning that the haunting of Hill house is like, okay, so there are these characters, including Eleanor and the doctor and Theodora and, uh, um, Jack, is it Jack? Sounds right. Um, Luke. Yeah. 
Luke, Luke, um, who are all there investigating or learning about the haunting. Or you can take that title, The Haunting of Hill House, to be a descriptor of the plot of this book, that this book is about the haunting that happens to Hill House. Uh, the haunting of Eleanor, uh, especially, but also just any character who comes to Hill House is haunting Hill House. Um, and I like I, I do want to say that I came up with that independently, <laughs> and then I read the introduction in my uh, Penguin Classics edition by Laura Miller, where she references that, I think, just like a little bit. She just very briefly sort of mentions that sort of concept but i think it's worth considering even further even in this discussion of is the house the main character because then it's about what is going on for the house you know what's what's changing in the house which is i think a strong contender for what qualifies someone to be the main character is a change happens for the character a big significant change um and so is there a significant change that happens to the house because of, say, the presence right. of Eleanor? And I think the case can be um, made. Well, you've anticipated uh, or even gotten out ahead, rather, of uh, that second question that I uh, was sort of dangling over your head. Um, oh, good. And the, the question, uh, and this is, I guess, just in the... In the uh, manner of going further into something you've already raised but the question i was going to ask was so the the title of course is the haunting of hill house and i think that title has an ambiguity uh hidden within it or maybe hidden mm -hmm. within plain sight um because it, it being like most titles being a fragment rather than a complete sentence um the haunting right. uh, could be referring to Hill House is the one being haunted, um, or it could refer to Hill House right. as the one doing the haunting. Um, we call this a subjective or objective genitive. Since Thank you. The, the head verb haunting carries a verbal idea, the genitive of, uh, can turn the noun of that prepositional phrase in English into the subject of the sentence or the object of the sentence. So, like you say, is the house haunting or is something haunting the house? Exactly. Um, and even, even to say, like, the question, is the house haunted, for example, has an ambiguity of its own because... Mm -hmm. um, when we the typical way that that we that we talk about haunted house stories or a haunted house whether in in you know fiction or in some supposedly real you know sense is there such a thing as a haunted house blah 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 um the idea is usually that a house itself contains uh uh some spirits or something that is actively haunting it mm -hmm. um but the other way to take all of those things, including the title of this book, is that something comes to a house to haunt it. So the house itself starts mm -hmm. out not haunted, 
Right. Um, and then becomes haunted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I also must have been, uh, because, you know, the I did my typical thing because um, scholarly introductions are just awful about, like, spoiling things. So oh, yeah. I read the text of this book, and then I, I also have uh, Laura Miller's introduction. Okay. Um, and so I did read it uh, uh, after the fact. Um, mm-hmm. And again, as usual with scholarly introductions, it worked really, really nicely uh, as sort of an article to read about something rather than an, as an introduction to it. At least if you don't want spoilers. If you don't care about spoilers, then, you know, it's probably fine. But, um, uh, yeah, so so I think I must have had the seed of the idea planted from there. Um, other, other articles that I have been uh, admittedly skimming through about this book uh, suggested it further. But um, the idea that, because to me the most baffling portion of this book uh comes i think in the back half really of this book Mm. once the manifestations and the hauntings really start to become inexplicable and people are uh uh you know manifesting things and there's like messages written in blood on the mirrors and the walls and like for a minute the text kind of acts like it's going to be like a Hound of the Baskervilles thing. Like I half expected, mm. you know, either the professor, really any of them. It could be the professor, any of them, could be yeah. Luke, could be Theo for, uh, you know, their own sort of separate reasons. Um, could possibly have, uh, uh, I don't know, done, done what, what uh, people looking at psychics mm. and mediums call a hot reading where mm. you know you're gonna you're gonna try to uh tell someone's fortune quote unquote so you research them beforehand um mm. you know and then all of a sudden you have all these things about them but it's just because you the what what the the marks thought was a was a cold reading or an initial meeting the the um practitioner knew about beforehand and was able to come up with a bunch of facts a much easier thing to do in you know the age of the internet um but the idea that someone had like for whatever reason whether out of malice or jealousy or for some kind of financial goal or or you know con related goal or something had like researched eleanor and and was trying to drive her crazy um Mm -hmm. that was all you know potentially there but like the the last third of the book or so just makes it clear that like everyone is kind of baffled by these things, including Eleanor. Um, so it felt to me like if, you know, a, a like rough draft that had gotten published and that some of this needed more ironing, ironing out or whatever. Um, mm. Until uh, someone pointed out again, I, I would attribute if I if I could, but it's it, everything I've read is kind of running together at this point. But um, pointed out that like in the introduction to Eleanor in the in the very opening of this book, um, we have the information that Eleanor uh, has 
experienced psychic manifestations before, including some kind of poltergeist activity where yep. stuff seems to happen around her. Um, and it, when you look at all of that together, it militates more towards the idea that Hill House itself is not necessarily haunted as an entity. It's that mm -hmm. Eleanor is haunted, and perhaps anywhere that she would go yeah. would end up haunted. Um, right. Which makes the that stuff in the in the last third of the book like feel a lot less slapdash and a lot more intentional um as well as just makes a lot more i mean this may be the same thing in different words but makes it make a lot more sense i feel like to me um sure it makes it mu feel much more like something that was foreshadowed and that is the result of a coherent plan rather than just sort of an idea that shirley jackson had laid in the book and never mm -hmm. really refined <laughs> um so yeah, I guess I guess like ultimately um this leads back to the idea that I do think Eleanor is is the main character and we can talk about arcs and internal arcs and external arcs um but I think overall she is the main character and that she is haunting Hill House. So a more mm -hmm. accurate albeit like much more spoilerific title for this book might be Eleanor's Haunting of Hill House. Um, sure. Now, I don't think that that's the only interpretation uh, that's possible, but that's, no. I guess, the one that I'm happiest with in the sense that I think it I... gives Shirley Jackson the most credit and it's the most interesting of the ones that I either thought of or encountered. So the reason I, I know so much about um, subjective versus objective genitive is because it's a it's a discussion that comes up in textual analysis, exegesis, um, especially um, like regarding the New Testament um, and such. Sure. It's a big question in Greek. You know, when you, whenever you come across a, a genitive, the question is, what kind of genitive is it? Um, and subjective versus objective is always a hot topic i tend whenever that debate comes up to fall on the side of plenary genitive which is not deciding <laughs> um or saying it carries elements of both um and uh there's a debate about you know what even to call that or um whether it is its own category or anything like that, but that, that's that's kind of where I fall. And so what that's that's what I think Shirley Jackson is deliberately doing with this title too, is including that as a possible interpretation. Essentially, you boil it down and you say it's deliberately ambiguous, and the ambiguity includes this fact: what you just said. It's Eleanor's haunting of Hill House. So that. While that may not be the interpretation, that is included in this. It is an aspect of it. Sure. And I think when I when I say that it's Eleanor's haunting of Hill House, I think I still mm -hmm. include Hill House as a character. Like, um, that's mm -hmm. not to exclude that interpretation or that, you know. Uh, uh, there's a, a, a book that, or a, it's technically a trilogy, but... Um, I would argue that 
assuming this podcast lasts long enough, we should one day do it as a Mondo book. Um, the Gormenghast mm-hmm. trilogy, which is considered sort of a classic of the fantasy genre. Um, mm-hmm. And Gormenghast is, is... It's a little bit Kafka-esque. It's like... It's sort of like if Kafka met Tolkien and they collaborated. Because um, Gormenghast is this vast, you know, secondary world. And it's a castle, or a... I think castle is a fair descriptor, that exists within a world. But the castle within the world mm. is itself large enough to be a world. And, um, oh. you know, by the time you meet it, um, the the family that rules it and the people that serve them have these, like generational uh um rituals and and such things that um are about the castle itself and it's like the the trilogy as it stands follows one main character but in his perambulations throughout the house itself like it sort of becomes clear that like he's the secondary character to the castle gormenghast um and I don't think Shirley Jackson's doing the exact same thing here, but I think this is as if a house and a person were meeting on equal footing as as two characters. Um, mm. I think that uh, one way that I might, you know, um, be tempted to to put it is that like the house is sort of a a magnifier or even a medium per se for whatever is going on with Eleanor um, in the sense that, you know, uh, uh, the sun, and this is the only metaphor I can think of, and it's going to make me sound like a, like a psychopath, but here we go. Um, The, the metaphor that I keep thinking about is that like, you know, on a 90 degree day, the sun might beam down, but you need a child with a magnifying glass to focus it. Um, in yeah. such a way that, like, ants or preferably, like, earwigs or mosquitoes will burst into flame, right? Um, right. So in this metaphor, like, Eleanor might be the sun, like, in in the sense that whatever's going on with her, depending on the setting, might be somewhat diffuse and might not manifest or, or manifest in a noticeable way. But, like, Hill House acts as the perfect magnifier or the perfect focus, Um to manifest those things which of course like suggests a lot about sort of the nature of reality or indeed the nature of houses that um has a has a you know long history within the within the horror genre and within like haunted house stories and ghost stories specifically dating back at least to the to the gothic uh the true gothic novels in the 18th and early 19th mm-hmm. century if not i wouldn't be surprised if there's precursors before that even right and even besides that like you alluded to the idea that someone could be gaslighting eleanor sure. throughout this book and so like that 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 concept that there could be a rational explanation at least for the earlier parts of the book um but then it becomes increasingly well, or that that becomes decreasingly. To me, it's possible. like there could be um, if you were Arthur Conan Doyle writing this story, there could be a rational explanation yes. for the later parts of this book, even the ones that seem deeply unlikely. There could as be. far as like the blood on the walls, writing very specific things about like Eleanor and her mother or whatever. Um, 
Right. If this were a Sherlock Holmes mystery. And, and of course, you know, you'd have foreshadowing because uh, Sherlock would be yes. poking around and, like, tracing his finger through party-colored dust and tasting it and figuring out that it could only have come from this one quarry in in Asia Minor and whatever. Um, but he'd step in at that very last chapter and say, well, clearly uh, uh, the professor, you know, knew Eleanor beforehand, which I think because of this, and this, you know, there, there could be something like that. But it's the, the uncanniness of the, of the last section of the book to me is the fact that Shirley Jackson kind of sets that up and then doesn't pay it off at all. Um, so that's not to, uh, try to, you know, pull the rug out from under what you might be about to say, Michael, that, that there could be someone still gaslighting her, but that's, that's sort of what I was. What? And I, I was going to go off in a sure. little bit of a different direction because I, I suspected like literally anyone else for a fraction of the novel. I suspected Eleanor of creating all of this mm. far longer, um, I, I suspected that that she was some shade of crazy, where she was either deliberately or subconsciously causing all sure. of this stuff to happen. Um, that that's that's what I suspected for the longest time. But more than that, even and this this I think ties right back into your initial question of who the main character is and our discussion of the. Um, narrative style as well. The narrator also is... I don't want to say <laughs> oppressive. Because that has negative connotations that I don't mean. But the the narrator is heavy Are you trying to say sort of that the narrator is... Of this book trying to focus you on very specific things and details. I think I'm trying to say the narrator, while not necessarily being unreliable, is not sure, unbiased. Yeah. Uh, and you can see that in the craft, which is just a masterful authorship craft, but also in the way that the narrator presents things somewhat scientifically but also the, so so here and th this gets back to some of what I was talking about with the the waiting in in the novel that the narrator is holding on to some information that the reader knows the narrator has but the narrator is not releasing it and so this uh, comes up uh, it's in my edition somewhere in the middle of the um, second chapter, I think. Third chapter. Um, yeah, it's uh, right before part okay. four of the third chapter, um, where they're having a conference. Everybody who has is, has come to the house is is there, and they're they're talking. Um, and I think it's Theodora who says, "Why did you bring us here, Doctor? Why are you here yourself?" How did you hear about Hale House, and why does it have such a reputation, and what really goes on here? What is going to happen? Now, here's the thing. Um, a, a couple things about that. It's set up in the, in the dialogue there that most likely it's Theodora who's saying that, mm. but it could also be Eleanor. 
um, who's saying that, just technically. So right there, first of all, the, the narrator is, by leaving any name unattached to that block of dialogue, um, creating an ambiguity and withholding information. Um, just, But it's, in, it's parallel in the same way that the doctor has been withholding information. These are all questions that the reader also has. Um, and we can ask the narrator this instead of the the doctor here why are you setting this story up narrator why are you putting the setting here in this house um what's what's the significance of hill house why does it have such a reputation what really goes on here what is going to happen the reader can ask that it's question one of, those things of the where... narrator because the narrator has heavily hinted that right. something is going to happen but we have it's one of no idea where it what it's going almost to be. feels like the author peeking out from behind the curtains and being like <laughs> like winking at you in the sense that like yes, that's 100%. literally the yes. question about almost all fiction like you know maybe exceptions mm-hmm. like the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy aside like what is going to happen sure. is literally the reason you keep reading most stories but, but here's the thing, like, what is going to happen? You at least have a, a projected arc in right. you have, most fiction. You know, you've got the hero's or journey arc. Or even if you arc, don't have something like you've got that, the, the you romance have, like, arc. Or... A, a narrative question that has already been set up. Do the yes. good guys triumph over the right. bad guys? Well, think of Midnight Library yeah. and the smoothness of it. You know, the smoothness of Midnight Library. The question is, does she live? Does she die? Right. Does what she is move she, on to a different life? That's more the simply, question what is, that's there. What does she choose? And it's going to be answered right? by the like, end. Yeah. Right. In this book, there is there is no clear-cut question right. except what's going to yeah, happen. Are, in, it's, it <laughs> what, even gets, what is the plot? And this isn't the why only are we time here? It, it gets this way, but it gets existential, right? Because it's like, why are we here? And, yes. you know, it... it almost pushes out of the out of the narrative bounds to say like existentially why are we here but in the book itself these are characters who except for the professor and even including luke who has like some you know uh a stake in the in the game as it were why is he there like this this all could have been accomplished without him being there so it's it's this collection of three characters and there's just enough like hinted at why each one is there but yeah it's well not yeah there's there's like plot. justification you understand psychologically why everyone is there but right. in a plot sense yeah there you know a, a more classical plot or a more i don't know obvious plot or in this extended metaphor that i can't seem to escape a smoother plot um <laughs> you know each one of them would have come to hill house wanting to find something specific i've heard that there's a treasure here or i've heard that there's you know this or that um the only one who has anything like that is the professor who you could argue is clearly delineated as i want to find out if ghosts are real um but right but even even that his question isn't that clear-cut his question is still right what's going on here his question is still that main question things, of why are we here? He's still asking right, why are here we here? In a why, place what's that going might on? answer some questions I have, but it's almost like why is that? Why is this the place that will answer that? Um, and yep. and two things about that. One is that like the professor, you know, it, it's an 
is an unsatisfying answer, even with us just problematizing it even further, he's an unsatisfying answer to that question on the surface because, like, he is the only other one besides the narrator directly who is, like, intentionally and obviously withholding information. And that goes back to the, the passage that we kind of uh, yep. uh, took this rabbit trail off of people, you know, asking the professor questions. And he, at best, he gives partial answers. Often he just seems to avoid the questions altogether or to say, yep. uh, you know, wait and see. I'm yep. waiting and see. You know, just, just these these really non-answers. Yep. Uh, non and, and the other thought I had about the professor is like, yeah, it seems it... It seems like nonsense even to say that he's there to conduct a scientific experiment because right from the get-go, right from literally the first few pages of this book, um, the people that he brings around are there because they have experienced uh, supernatural or psychic phenomena. To me, that feels like not the people that you bring into a place that you feel like you're investigating for supernatural phenomena. Like, isn't the basic idea of a scientific experiment that you keep contaminants out of it? You keep you keep it as as simple and straightforward as possible. Like, yes. why are you bringing in the exact people who would create this ambiguity of what the haunting is? Like, is it Eleanor doing the haunt? Like, to me, if you if you really want right. to run this experiment on sort of an objective footing, and you're really interested in, um sort of the house itself you know is, is the house haunted are ghosts real stuff like that i don't think like eleanor and theodora are the people you bring in i think the people you bring in are like who's like the yeah. captain of the football team who's you know was the the prom king and maybe he works at a bar in the town he grew up in but like he has all of the most basic like middle of the road opinions about everything and he's never seen a supernatural thing in his life like maybe he goes to the methodist church every sunday but he'd he would never have said yeah. you know uh that he'd seen a ghost or something and obviously i'm just creating a very specific character but uh someone like that is like sure but it, the deck yeah, is stacked yeah it's stacked is the point it's it's like it's like it's muddled it's like you've you've taken a bunch of outside yeah. irrelevant factors and put them in in such a way that you'll never know even if something happens you'll never know what it is right and, and, and i want to step back to the the fact that the doctor is is withholding information much like the narrator is too because they 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 know something but as you continue on it's questionable whether the doctor does um that would imply some sort of movement but really the theme of all of this is this waiting which is kind of a a, a classical thing regarding horror and fear hp lovecraft talks about this a little bit too that um what's more terrifying than the right. monster is the waiting uh, for the monster i mean that that you know you see that in in jaws right um that jaws is such a terrifying movie because you rarely see the shark um, the monster is invisible. Um, uh, and, you know, H.P. Lovecraft says uh, the, that um, the, the greatest fear is the fear of the unknown. Right. So, like, what are we what are we waiting for? What's going to happen? It creates that tension. It creates that existential 
uh, sort of crisis to it. And so the, the, the reader is put right into uh, the house with these characters by not knowing yeah. what's coming because the narrator has taken control and refuses to um, reveal. So I think, Michael, I think you've probably hit on the most interesting discussion question so far in, in this whole realm. And I want to pick this up next time. We are going. We are getting right up against our time. Okay. Uh, but I, I want to just sort of break in the middle here, like a, you know, almost a, a cliffhanger. If literary discussions can have cliffhangers, um, because I think <laughs> there's a like I don't think we're gonna round this out in a satisfying way, at least to me, in the next five minutes. Um, and so I've written down the question so that I remember it in two weeks uh, when we come back and discuss this again. Um, is someone slash who is gaslighting Eleanor? Because that's what we set out to, like I the see. question you set out for us at the beginning of this sort of line of conversation. And again, I don't think we've fully addressed it um, or fully discussed it, uh, or at least it, the, the constellation of things that that orbit it i know constellations don't orbit don't at me this is not a science podcast mm. um the quick <laughs> thing i want to say briefly right here at the end is just to go back to that that uh quote that you started this line of conversation with the the whole what is going to happen from presumably theodora possibly eleanor yep. um you're absolutely right that that's uh uh unambiguously ambiguous um if you'll pardon the phrasing. Um, and yep. just to say that, like, I think one of the most brilliant thing, other brilliant things you pointed out is just, like, waiting in this book. If I were back in grad school, you know, this is a thing we do on this podcast, is, like, posit papers we would write if we were studying mm -hmm. these things back in a formal grad school setting. Um, this would be more of an analysis paper, I think, than, like, a, like a you know, term paper or a theme-based paper or something more complex. But... Just in terms of analysis and craft, I would love to write a full paper on waiting in the haunting of Hill House. Like, I think that's absolutely there, and it's it's certainly yeah. in like as you finish off that little section of that chapter. Um, they're literally just waiting, like the um, uh, you know, Doctor. I want to say it's in that scene that the doc. You know, they're just like making tea and yeah, stoutly upon the ramparts. Luke says almost towards the um the end mm -hmm. you know it's it, yeah it's 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 a yep in a very real way like it's a book about waiting which is a much more tristram shandy-ish uh direction for a text to take than you'd expect of a horror novel right? specifically um yeah now that said michael is there any like 30 second soundbite you want to get in here right at the end something that won't take us another hour to discuss no i think we we no i think i think we we will have plenty yeah, to discuss in the next episode um, so so that said gentle listener thank you for <laughs> so you have to wait uh yeah try not to run away whatever house you're in eh, it, the thing knocking on the door it's probably nothing um and it was it was definitely your uh completely platonic roommate slash friend that definitely isn't your lover's hand that you were holding and besides that it's definitely not anything else um anyway uh yeah that said 
Thank you for listening to part one of our discussion of The Haunting of Hill House. Um, please feel free to read along with us. Uh, send us your thoughts anytime, whether it's... <coughs> excuse me. Whether it's in real time after you've listened to this one before the next one has come out, or anytime in the future. Um, you can do that at tapestryradio.org. Uh, go to the contact section, put Scotch Talk in the subject line. Otherwise, um, if you want to give us content, or at least not content, but ideas uh, for future special episodes, um, you can go to tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. Uh, we have a form there where you can submit your homework for us. Past homework, future homework, current homework, um, made up homework, we won't know. Um, we won't do it well. We won't do it in a way that uh, makes any sense or gets you a good grade. But we will do it funny, at least to us, and that's what counts. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, go ahead and, and submit your homework there. Um, you can reach us on Twitter, so far, uh, at Scotch, uh, Room with Scotch, is that right? Yeah. Room with Scotch on Twitter. Um, Room with Scotch. Yeah, uh, otherwise, uh, is there a tapestry email address they can reach us at well i guess we have the scotch the scotch stock the contact form if you go to the contact yeah, section that'll go to the best. email for uh, us so. i don't know why i forgot i just said that anyway um yeah uh also join us on our other shows on the tapestry radio network we have freddie goes to a podcast our other uh sort of literature discussion podcast where three grown men read the freddie the pig book series written for children a hundred years ago uh funnier than it sounds um we have uh uh us play fiasco a fiasco like rpg slash improv um podcast uh there's pokemon rollout pokemon tabletop you tabletop united actual play rpg podcast uh michael what shows am i missing i guess there's intermission there's our audio drama podcast um yep cool. i think you covered it there uh, all of that said, until next time, gentle listener, just remember, it's our party and we'll cry if the house we're haunting makes us, or if the house haunting us makes us. Yeah, we're gonna go with that. <laughs> yes. Okay, thanks, bye! Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From our fancy to yours.